Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff Birch. I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church, and whether you are in person or watching across the live stream, we offer a warm welcome to all of you. We are thrilled that you have chosen to worship with us this morning, and we gather this morning to praise and honor the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and to worship God in spirit and in truth. A couple of different announcements uh, before we enter into worship. On the end of each row is your friendship register, and this is really for everyone. We want to invite everyone. We're not looking to intimidate or threaten anybody, but we would love for everyone if you are willing to sign in. So here's what you have to do. If you're at the end of the row, fill it out, pass it down to your friend, and then they will pass it back to you and We'll be able to know, and one of our visions here as we talk about loving God, loving one another, and loving the community is to build relationships and friendships with each other. I would hope that you all picked up one of your, what do I call it, communion packet? Lord's Supper in a packet, and so we are trying to be, this is not COVID-related in terms of having this. We have more and more things opening up, but we're trying to be good stewards, Uh, The deacons informed me this week we have hundreds of these left. And so, isn't there something about wasting that we're not supposed to do? And so, here at Lake Oconee, we're going to be good stewards of those. So, hopefully you picked up your wafer and your uh, juice or wine in terms of that and have that. If you don't have that, they are at the back table or raise a hand and an usher will get it to you. Uh, Other announcements of things going on? Okay, do they see? There are some hands up, so calling all ushers, calling all ushers. Anybody bring? Hang in there. They're going to, there we go. We got movement going on in the back. It's always, always a good sign when we have, Rachel, just keep your hand up through the whole service. (laughs) By the the time we get to the Lord's Supper, you're going to be all set. Don't you love the announcements portion? I I always like it because I can have more of a sense of humor. We're not in worship yet. This is entering in. We're not there yet, so uh, I can have a little bit of fun. This month, we are also taking nominations for our church officers, elder and deacon. And so if you are led to nominate somebody, what you want to do is uh, talk to them first, get their willingness uh, to be nominated for either deacon or elder. And then there are forms in the back. You want to pick them up, and then it, after you fill them out, drop them off in the uh, box that's in the back there. We are receiving nominations until the end of the month or the 27th of June. And then just a reminder that our Change for Life baby bottle campaign continues for one more week until the 20th. So deadline to return the filled bottles is June 20th. And so if you haven't picked up a bottle to fill it with some of your loose change and then bring it back, uh, please do so as well. So those are some of the things that are going on in the life of the church. And so now as the prelude is played, let's prepare our hearts for worship. Olivia, thank you so much. 
Friends, our call to worship as we enter into the very presence of God this morning is this particular invitation from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Lord, enable us and help us to come to you, the fountain of living water. We do thirst. We thirst for life. We thirst for power. We thirst for security. We thirst for purpose. Lord, we hear what the prophet has said. Why do we spend our resources on that which does not satisfy? Give us the ability to turn to you and fill our hearts with praise and adoration. We invoke your very presence this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Now let's stand together and sing this great hymn of the faith, Holy, Holy, Holy. Psalm 150 says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That's what we are doing. We are praising Him this morning. And one way that He has ordained for us to praise Him is to confess what it is we believe as a corporate people together. Our confession of faith this morning will be a responsive reading from the Heidelberg Catechism, questions 1 and 2. People of God, what is it that you believe? 
What is your only comfort in life and death? must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Praise the Lord. Let's stand together and sing the power of the cross.
be seated. What a powerful song. Christ became sin for us, took our blame on our place, or the wrath of God. And because of that, we are declared righteous in Jesus Christ. Do you know how we appear to God? Just as beautiful as Jesus is. Clothed in his righteousness, we can appear before the throne of grace without any fear, without any guilt, without any shame. You know, I know we all don't run as fast as we used to. At least I don't. But we should be sprinting to the throne of grace. Let's do that now as we pray in unison the Lord's Prayer, and then I lead us in our pastoral prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we only come before you because you have first come to us. You came down in the person of Jesus to become sin for us, to take our blame, to bear the wrath of God so that we do stand forgiven at the cross. And we know that you hear us, and as our Father, you delight in us, you nourish us, you shepherd us, you provide for us, you protect us, you discipline us. The blessings are endless. It's no wonder that Paul praised you for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So as best as we are able, we hallow your name, and we seek the coming of your kingdom, where we ask that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us each day to do more and more of your will, to love people as we are loved, to love our neighbors, to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, that we would be a people bearing more love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We pray, Father, this day for our daily bread, physical nourishment, spiritual nourishment. As Isaiah called us to worship, we come to the waters to drink. And we are nurtured by your word and by your spirit. And we seek forgiveness. We ask that you forgive, forgive us for our sins, both of commission and of omission. Those things that we shouldn't do and yet we willfully do. And those things that we should not do. We ask your forgiveness. And we ask, Father, for us to be a forgiving people. When we don't forgive, we are deceiving ourselves into thinking we're superior to someone else. And we are forgetting that our only place of acceptance is at the foot of the cross. So, Lord, lead us not into temptation, the temptation to pride, the temptation to self-righteousness, but deliver us from evil. We pray, Father, that you would be with all of those who are hurting, all of those who are suffering, physical emotional, mental, relational affliction in any way. We recognize that it is a spiritual battle. And we also acknowledge, Father, that yours and yours alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
How great is it to have some of our young people leading us in worship this morning? Mary, thank you so much for doing that. So we so appreciate it. What a great thing to see is to see our young people using their gifts to glorify the Lord. Amy, I'm grateful you're encouraging that. I think that is absolutely tremendous. So we are grateful. The uh, text upon which our teaching is based this morning comes from the book of Romans. You didn't think I finished the series in one week, did you? We need much more patience than that. This is only week two. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves us. We all get excited about certain things in life, don't we? We all love to look forward to things. I remember back in March after I came up here and I candidated and you all, astonishingly to me, you voted that you wanted me to be your pastor. And I was like, two months. We'll be there in two months. It was March and I'm like, May 1st, we're coming. Time to sell the house, pack the boxes. The boxes are still packed, or at least a lot of them. (laughs) Do you know how many books I have? They'll be packed for quite a while. But we all get excited about things. A trip, a family vacation, a son or daughter that's coming to visit. Don't you look forward? It's summertime. I would bet many of you are looking forward to your families coming visit, visiting the lake sometime this summer, right? You're excited about things like that. For me, I grew up playing golf with my dad provided me some of the best memories of my life. And I can remember times through our life when my dad would be able to get us on some pretty nice golf courses. So, for example, when we both lived in Philadelphia or in the Philadelphia area, we had the opportunity to play Marion Country Club, where the U.S. Open was held. And I can remember walking in that clubhouse just in awe at that opportunity. And then after my mom and dad had moved to Florida... And we were still, Evie and Joel and I were still living in Philadelphia at the time. We were planning one of those summer vacations, summer trips, two weeks in Florida, getting ready to come down and all this. My dad calls me on the phone and he says, son, we're going to play sawgrass. Now, for those of you, oh, see, I see the reaction of some. You know what sawgrass is, where the TPC in Pontevedra Beach is held. Okay, my excitement, you think I'm energetic in the pulpit? My excitement level just went off the charts. Evie, we're going to play sawgrass. I'm going, pack the, you know, I almost forgot to pack my underwear, but the golf clubs, they were packed first. They were definitely in there. And so, and yes, for those of you who know the golf course, I birdied the 17th hole, the island green. That is like, that's my signature moment. I think I double bogeyed every other hole. But I birdied 17, my signature moment in golf. Okay, listen to the tone of the Apostle Paul as he's expressing his exuberance and his heart at wanting to come 
and see the church at Rome. He is so excited to come and visit Rome and the church there. He says, I'm eager to come and preach the gospel to you. I'm looking forward to imparting a spiritual gift. I don't know what that spiritual gift was, but he's excited to do that. He says, we're going to be a mutual encouragement to each other's faith. In other words, I'm seeking to encourage you. You're going to encourage me. He's apologetic about not being able to get there before. And he is so eager and excited, you might even say determined and resolute to get there, to visit there, and to minister to the church there. So let's ask the question, why? Why is Paul so eager and so determined to visit Rome? He's exuberant. You might even think he's over the top in his excitement. You might be going, okay, Paul, tone it down a little bit. A little too much excitement here. But see, he's not because of his view of the gospel. He is that excited about the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when he says good news, he means that it is the jaw-dropping wonder of the riches of Jesus Christ and the glory of Jesus Christ. And he longs to come and to share that and to proclaim that. He is filled with wonder at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why is he so exuberant? It's because of what he believes about the gospel. And I just basically preached on verses 8 through 15 there. Okay, I gave you the narrative in this. And you might be thinking, wow, fast sermon today. Way to go, Jeff. We only have two verses to go. I just gave you the heart of verses 8 through 15. Time out. We're going to spend a little while now on the heart of not only this morning's message, but the thesis of Paul's letter to the Romans. Because the thesis of Paul's letter to the Romans is found here in verses 16 and 17, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he says, For in the gospel, in it, Referring to the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in these verses, he's telling us three things. He's telling us that the gospel is something, the power of God. That the gospel does something, it brings salvation to all who believe Because the gospel reveals something. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So the gospel is something, the gospel does something, and the gospel reveals something. And all of these points build on each other. This is like a crescendo of an orchestra. Trust me, I'm not a musician. I'm not going to be taking Amy's place, leading the choir. I'm not going to be doing this. I have no idea what this means other than my hands are waving. (laughs) I have no idea what I'm doing in terms of this. But I do know in this passage, and I do know that this passage is building. So Paul's excitement is building on itself here because he says the gospel is something because it does something, because it reveals something. And all of that makes him pause, be exuberant, and stop in wonder at the riches of Jesus Christ. And here's the thesis of his letter. So let's explore each of these and pray that our lives will be centered upon and exuberant about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, look with me at verse 16. The gospel is something. It is the very power of God. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Remember that Paul is here giving us the reason for his determination and his resolution to get to Rome. His statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel, may seem a little strange, a little off-putting at first. What does he mean, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? We might ask, why is he putting this in such a negative form? Why not just say, I'm excited about the gospel? He puts it instead, I'm not ashamed. Well, I love how one writer put it when he said, the emotion of shame with reference to the gospel when confronted with the pretensions of human wisdom and power betrays unbelief in the truth of the gospel. 
And the absence of shame is the proof of faith. You hear what that writer is saying? I think he's accurate there. He's saying Paul is eager to demonstrate his faith because as the passage unfolds, he will be insisting on the necessity of faith. And so why is he so ready to preach the gospel? He believes in it. He is not ashamed of it. He believes that it is actually the power of God for salvation. Now stop there for a second. Did you hear that? The gospel is the power of God. It is not about the power of God. It doesn't describe the power of God. Meaning, I I just told you about my trip to Sawgrass with my dad, and I could have described the golf course. Luscious green, beautiful fairways. I could have described it in so many ways. The The gospel doesn't describe the power of God. I mean, you could spend... Eternity, describing the power of God. But the gospel actually unleashes, actually is the power of God for salvation. And the Greek word that is used there is the word dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. That means literally the gospel is the dynamite of God. Do we have a clue what we're playing with, in a sense? What would happen? This would be a sermon illustration. If you saw me pull out, see, I like this. Got hiding places back here. You all on live stream can't see this beautiful pulpit and all that. So what if I had one of those three or four sticks of, what is it, TNT, dynamite? Hmm. And you saw me doing almost the impossible. I'm lighting it, and I'm walking down these steps, and I'm putting it right in the middle. Do you think you would be just kind of sitting there just going, great point, Jeff. Huh, that's the Greek word. I never knew that. I can't wait till I share that with my neighbors and friends. The Greek. You would be making a beeline to run out of here as quickly as possible. You'd be moving and scratching. The gospel is not something that your heart can stay neutral towards. It is not a bunch of simply information that you kind of go, ho-hum. It is the actual dynamite, the omnipotence, the power of God. One of my great favorite fiction writers is the writer Annie Dillard. And in her book, In Teaching a Stone to Talk, she says, Why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Quite a writer, isn't she? She writes, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. She says, we all come in wearing our favorite clothes. She says, instead, we should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Do we get that? We are in the presence of the almighty God whose power is being unleashed when the gospel, which is a message, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, is being proclaimed. How do we respond to that? It is his omnipotence. That's the first point. The gospel is... And imagine these things build on each other. Second, the gospel does something. Look at the rest of verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. For... The salvation of everyone who believes. See, the gospel is the omnipotence or the dynamite of God that actually does something. It raises the dead. It brings us from death to life. Do you realize what Paul says about us before our being brought from death to life, before our becoming followers of Jesus He writes in Ephesians chapter 2, as for you, you were dead 
in your trespasses and sins in what you once walked. I don't, I don't think we take seriously enough what the word of God says. I mean, do you know what kind of ability? I know we love the, the point in our kind of Calvinist theology that talks about total depravity. But I actually think a better, maybe, word for it is total inability. Because think about this. What does a dead person have the ability to do? As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what is salvation? Salvation is resurrection. That's why I love when C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity doesn't say that God is making nice men. He says God is making new men. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation, not a self-improved creation. A new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. The gospel is the omnipotence of God that has the power to bring us from death to life. And do you realize that if you are a follower of Jesus, you're alive in Jesus, what the scriptures say is true of you? Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says that believers are to count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You've been brought to new life. Now, I want you to notice something here. Notice that this salvation is not automatic. The text does not read that it is the power of God unto salvation automatically for everyone. Thus, the necessity of faith. The text says everyone who believes, regardless of race and class and heritage and background and pedigree and educational level, political affiliation, culture. One commentator put it this way, wherever there is faith, there the omnipotence of God is operative unto salvation. This is a law with no exceptions. And since it is the power of God operative unto salvation, do you realize no one is beyond the scope? No one is beyond hope in God saving them. There are no hopeless people out there. No one is beyond the hope of God's power reaching them. One other very important thing that I want to stress before we move on to our last point, and that is it is not the amount or the strength of faith that matters, but the object of the faith that matters. It is faith or trust in the gospel of Christ. Remember, it is the gospel that is the power of God. Not on a 1 to 10 scale, oh, I have amazing faith, I'm a 9. Or I have lowly faith, I'm a 1. It's the object of your faith. I love how Tim Keller illustrates it. He illustrates it in the following story, and it's just kind of the best illustration of faith I've heard. He says it's like two men who both approach two ladders. They see ladders going up to the roof. One approaches it very boldly. Great confidence, strong faith in that ladder, great assurance. The other's timid, kind of weak, checking it out. But they both go up their respective ladders. But one ladder's rungs are weak and do not hold the bold man, no matter how much confidence or assurance he has while the other ladder's rungs are strong and thus hold the man, though his faith is weak. See, what matters is not the strength of the faith, not the amount of the faith, but the object of the faith. I want you to ask yourselves the question, do a little heart surgery. Is the object of faith Jesus Christ? Not being a church member, not going to church all your life, not raising a good family, not being successful in your career, is the object of your faith Jesus Christ. So the gospel is something. The gospel does something. And last, the gospel reveals something. Look with me at verse 17. <coughs> For in the gospel... A righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith 
from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Now, last week, and I need to bring this up because these texts all build, you know, Paul's writing, a, you know, a singular letter here. We need to, dis- I, I mentioned that Paul in his preaching, he's not inventing something. It's not a new thing. But the gospel is always found, it's rooted in the soil of the Old Testament. And it is amazing how in these verses, verses 16 and 17, there are four key ideas that come out of the Old Testament. You've got the power of God, you've got salvation, you've got revelation revealed, and you've got the righteousness of God. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Psalm 98, verses 1 and 2, all four of these ideas are in this particular psalm. The psalmist says, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked. Notice the power of God there. His right hand, his holy arm have worked powerfully. There's the second idea, salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed. There's the idea of revelation or manifestation. His righteousness to the nations. And then again in Isaiah 46, 13, he says, I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Now, I don't want to over-exaggerate the matter, but in the language of the Old Testament, salvation and the righteousness of God are basically used in parallel ways. They're synonymous. They basically convey the same idea. So when Paul is saying that the righteousness of God is revealed, he means so much more than just information is being conveyed. The force of the concept has a much more dynamic meaning. So in other words, something real happens. Something more than just giving knowledge or giving information. This is why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, we have to stop and ask, what does that term, what does that phrase, righteousness of God, mean? Does it mean, for example, as some might say, an attribute of God, such as God is righteous, God is just, God is faithful? Well, of course it means those things, among others, We're not denying that. Of course, God is righteous. God is just. God is faithful. But if this was, if we look at the text, if this is primarily or only what the text meant, how would then this attribute of God be simply for our salvation? None of us can measure up to the standard of God's righteousness. None of us can measure up work ourselves up, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps to the justice or the faithfulness or the righteousness of God. How then, see, this is the righteousness of God for a purpose, for our salvation, for bringing us from death to life. It is a righteousness that is revealed in the good news of Jesus. A righteousness that is revealed in the gospel, making the gospel the power of God for our salvation. So what does it mean? Well, I love, I've got to quote Martin Luther on this because I think he was the one who had the classic breakthrough on this. If you remember Martin Luther's story of he wrestled so much with this particular passage and this particular verse and passage and specifically the phrase righteousness of God. Couldn't confess his sins enough until the Holy Spirit revealed to him And now I'll read it in his words. He said, this righteousness of faith. He called it a Christian righteousness or a passive righteousness. And he says it must be distinguished from the rest because it works in a completely different way from the others. He says the other kinds of righteousness we can work at ourselves. If I do enough, for example, in my job and I get a raise, I've worked for that righteousness that comes from my bosses. If I've done enough and I've been successful, I've worked for that kind of righteousness. He says, this kind of righteousness is completely foreign. 
He says, this Christian righteousness is the greatest righteousness of all. Listen to this. He says, God puts it on us without our lifting a finger. We do nothing for it. It is passive righteousness. It is the perfect record of all Christ did in living and dying. Do you hear that? The righteousness of God is the righteousness of God in Christ that is Christ's perfect life that he lived as our substitute. He was not only our substitute in his death, he was our substitute in his life. And he earned, he merited before God that righteousness. And then he credits it or imputes it to us. And do you know what we do to receive it, to get it? Absolutely nothing. I love how Jack Miller, who was one of my heroes in the faith, started World Harvest Mission, now known as Surge, used to put it, and he says, look at the grass. What does the grass do to receive the rain? You know, us pastors are listening to Jack going, wow, that's a difficult question. Ooh, he's tricking us on that one. There must be something. Let me dive into my Greek and Hebrew. We can be deluded sometimes. What does the grass do to receive the rain? It just lies there. It does nothing. This faith is a receptive faith that just receives the benefits of Christ, receives the righteousness of Christ. And God puts it on us like clothing. That's why I love when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, where John is saying, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of, a, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her. You hear that? See, we're the citizens of that new city. Followers of Jesus are the ones who belong to that new city, that kingdom. Do you know how we're described? We are described as the bride of Christ. You know, one of the fun things I get to do as a minister is I get to do weddings. And it's kind of cool. I remember my wedding. I remember standing there and Evie coming down, and I just wept. I was like, oh, my. And now I get to stand up there with grooms, these young, big guys. I'm a little tiny guy. And I, and I stand up there, and, and I've told them, I said, wait, wait till you see her. I'll try to catch you when you fall, but you're going down. <laughs> because she'll knock your socks. Because brides, when they come down that aisle, they're gorgeous. They're beautiful. They've got the dress What's the TV show? Say yes to the dress. That's my prayer for all of you. You will say yes to the dress and put on the righteousness of Christ and be clothed as a bride. Do you recognize as beautiful as a bride is to her husband, that's what we look like to Jesus? That we look to God just as gorgeous as Jesus is. That when God sees us, he doesn't see people who've messed up. He doesn't see failures. He doesn't see people who try to get their acts together and can't. He doesn't see people who've blown it, who wish they could have a second chance, who wish they could raise their children again, who wish they could do it better. He sees people clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees people that are absolutely beautiful to him. That's why in the words of one pastor, he put it this way, he says, this is the essence of the Christian faith. It is to say that Jesus is good enough and I am in him. You realize, I want you to just picture this. When Jesus was baptized and the heavens were torn open and a voice from heaven spoke and declared. And what did it declare? It says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now apply this, friends. We are in Jesus. 
So the voice that speaks to Jesus, if you're attached to Jesus, speaks to and about you. This is what the voice of God says about you if you were in Christ. You are my child. You are my beloved. You are the bride of Christ. You I love. With you I am well pleased. Do you look in the mirror and see one who is pleasing to God because of Jesus Christ and then walk in that power? That's why I put in this quote, and I'll close with this, and then we're going to let Christ feed us. John Bunyan, in his book, Grace Abounding to Chief of Sinners, every little touch, and maybe you'll relate to this, would hurt my tender conscience. But one day, I was, as I was passing through a field, suddenly I thought of a sentence, your righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of faith, I saw Christ sitting at God's right hand. And I suddenly realized, there is my righteousness. Wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say, where is your righteousness? For it was right before him. I saw that my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, nor a bad frame of heart make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, our righteousness, our adequacy, our being good enough is at your right hand. Forgive us that we try to be good enough on our own. Forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us. I'm convinced that the biggest battle we face in life is appropriating the fact that Christ is our righteousness. We all want to put our best foot forward, so to speak. Our best foot forward is Jesus. Our righteousness is in heaven. Help us to appropriate that. Help us to believe that. Help us to trust that and to receive that. In Jesus' name, amen. Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, trusting in the shed blood of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus, you are invited to come to the Lord's table, the Lord's supper this morning. Jesus is the host of his table. And we're declared, we have this status before God where we're declared and looked upon and treated and related to by God as righteous. But God knows that we need to be fed, that we're weak, that our faith is weak. So what does he do? He gives us the word, he gives us prayer, he gives us one another, and he gives us the sacraments, these tangible means of grace where he feeds us with himself. Jesus is feeding us with himself. This is more than just a memorial service. We are actually, by faith, beholding and feeding upon the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So friends, only if you have not yet trusted in Jesus, we want to invite you to keep coming back. We want to invite you to keep asking Jesus to make himself known and real to you. But it's only then that we would ask you to let the elements, to not take the elements. But friends, it doesn't matter if you have your act together. It doesn't matter how, what, as Bunyan said, as your frame of heart. Your frame of heart this morning, you might come in here and say, I'm on top of the world. I feel great. Your frame of heart might be, oh, those aches and pains are getting to me a little bit. Not feeling so well. You might be struggling with a little grumbling, a little complaining. It's okay to admit it. I admit I do that. I grumble. I complain. It's all right to admit that. Remember? It's not our righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. Be honest about yourself, so, but you could be in the worst frame of heart. Here's my advice. Turn to Jesus. 
receive his righteousness anew and afresh. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would feed us right now. Some of us, our faith is strong, and some of us, our faith is weak. And we need you. We come to you to eat and to drink and to receive your body and your blood. We ask that you would make yourself known and real to us, that we would, as the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good, that we would not just receive the words of forgiveness, but truly experience forgiveness. Paul wrote that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. I pray that the eyes of our heart would be more and more opened to the hope to which you've called us, the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. For as far as the east is from the west, so far have you forgiven us of our sins. The psalmist says, you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but as a father has compassion on his children, so you have compassion on those who fear you. Lord, may we as your people have tasted and seen that you are good. We ask, Father, that we would continue to receive and appropriate your love for us. We thank you that you love us so much that you give us these tangible means of grace to strengthen us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me.
Lord's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.